Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Good mental health is in large part the result of good communications in life. Most of us connect to each other with words, either by speaking them or by listening. For many, however, this is not so. I think most of us who can hear find the notion of being deaf as something that's very foreign, maybe even scary. Joining us today is Kim House from the National Deaf Academy in Mount Dora, Florida. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Preparing for this interview was humbling. It made me realize how little exposure most of us have to the mental health needs of the deaf. It is, in so many ways, almost a forgotten group, and I saw it called a minority within a minority. So let's begin with this, some general overviews. Do we know so little about the world of the deaf because they tend to be in their own social system, like it's their own culture? How do you see that? I think it's a little of both. I think it's not very well understood. And I think that even when hearing people encounter deaf people, they're uncomfortable. And, and they have no knowledge of what it's like or how to interact with them. And, and I think that there's not enough people that take an interest to learn more about it. Is there a difference in the type of, shall we say, psychology of someone who is deaf, those who lost their hearing after they have been able to hear in life? I think you people call that prelingual versus postlingual hearing loss. Is, is there a general difference in their general overall makeup? There is a difference because... If you're born deaf or you become deaf early in life, say before the age of five, then it's culturally deaf. I mean, that's the way you live. That's the way you have always lived. Whereas if you become deaf later in life, perhaps a senior citizen or even somebody middle-aged, they've lived their entire life as a person that is that is hearing. So when they lose their hearing entirely, they are still able to function in the hearing world because they have had the ability to speak, so they don't lose that. They have the ability to read and write as a hearing individual, whereas somebody that is prelingually deaf, they, they don't have those abilities. They've never learned to speak, and they're with reading and writing. That's not their first language, American Sign Language is. So they're going to read and write at the fourth grade level. It's an interesting thing then. If they if their language is the American Sign Language, they're like an immigrant who has come from another culture and they don't have the language of the common culture. How do they learn to socialize? How do they get jobs? How do you go about teaching them to do these things? I, this is an interesting area that I think very few people understand. It's very difficult. Say, for example, a deaf person has an occasion to have a hearing for whatever reason, at their local courthouse in front of a judge. I've seen it many times where there's no interpreter and the judge will say, well, I don't understand. This person can't read and write. Well, what they don't understand is that English is not their first language. So it crosses many lines in terms of difficulty. Employment, doctor's visits, I mean, you name it. So when someone comes to an organization like yours, the National Deaf Academy, well, let me back step and say, why would someone come to your organization? Why would a parent bring a child there? What, what's, what are they hoping to learn or give their child? What's your mandate, I guess? Mental health services in a culturally affirmative environment. 70% of our employees are deaf. It's a deaf campus. 
And the primary language on campus is American Sign Language. If you don't know sign language when you come to work at NDA, which is rare because it's pretty much mandatory that you become fluent. And the reason parents would send their, their child to us is because across this country, they cannot access mental health services for their child in an environment where that child can communicate. And that's what we offer. What sort of mental health problems, if you can clump them together a little bit, and maybe you can give us a a sort of a a generic example of a typical sort of case, but what sort of mental health problems do you guys deal with? Oh, it, it runs the gambit. We have residents that are developmentally delayed. We have residents with multiple psychiatric diagnosis. We have residents that have mental health issues as a result of neglect or abuse. So in every respect of the word, it is a mental health institute. I don't know if we'd call it a hospital per se, but the difference is the the language. That is the only difference. That's really fascinating. And how long do people stay with you? Is it like most typical hospitalizations? They're there for a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks, or is it a, a longer term campus type program? So our program is a longer term. It's not acute care. We have residents that stay six months, nine months, a year, could be even longer. We have had residents that have been with us for quite some time. And the question that jumps to my mind, because I think we all live in a world where the cost of treatment is just such a heavy issue, who pays for this? It's six months living with you guys has got to be expensive. It is expensive. and I would say that 90% of our residents whatever state they come from, Medicaid pays for it. Okay. So when they're with you and you get them hopefully fixed up as best as you can, then they go home. And I think one of the, let me put it this way, one of the things that intrigued me when I first started reading this and when we, you and I first started talking is what type of follow-up care is there in the general community? I couldn't find much. Is that a major problem? That is a major problem, and we work very, very hard at discharge planning. And in fact, we start that process from the day that they are admitted, and we have to because we know that there's such a lack of services throughout the country. We work very hard at either trying to find, if, if they're in need of a group home, we work hard at trying to find a group home that you know, where the staff knows sign language, that's very unlikely because that's rare. Or in the alternative, at least wraparound services, some access to communication and professionals that know American Sign Language. You and I spoke recently also about the very serious problem of when someone needs to be seen by a doctor and they need to get, I guess you would call it a translator, someone who knows how to sign. But it's an interpreter. An interpreter. Fine, we'll use that word instead. And there is actually federal regulation requiring it, the American Disabilities Act, I believe. Could you talk a little bit about that? The American Disabilities Act requires that if you have an individual that is deaf that is trying to access services and you're that provider, the provider must pay for the interpreting services to accommodate the patient that is deaf. It is the same as wheelchair access. If a provider professional is building a new building, they're going to be required to put in a wheelchair ramp so that those users have access. Well, there's no difference between that and providing interpreting services for a deaf individual. Now, I know many emergency rooms have people 
either on staff or connections with people who speak a whole range of different languages. Do emergency rooms, by and large, also have connections with someone who knows American Sign Language and have them available? Because I, I, I have this image in my mind of some poor soul coming in who's hallucinating or suicidal and they're deaf and they can only sign. And there's nobody in the emergency room to understand them. How frustrating for the patient, how frustrating for the staff. It's a mess. And it happens all the time, all the time. And the person will ask for an interpreter, mm-hmm. and they're told, you know, no, and we're not paying for that. I have had experience in going to local hospitals and doing training on this subject. And so our hospitals in this area have gotten much better about having knowledge of and providing interpreting services. But five or six years ago, that was not the case. And then if someone is truly psychotic and needs to be hospitalized in a local psychiatric facility for stabilization, whatever, the problem continues there as well. I, I, to have an interpreter on staff for all the meetings and in clinical interactions with the patient, I would imagine that doesn't happen very often as well. No, it doesn't. Hmm. And then the other thing that happens too is that even when they bring an interpreter in, there can be problems with the professional providing services if they have no familiarity with individuals that are deaf and deaf culture. For example, if you say to an individual that is deaf, are you hearing voices, which is a typical question, mm-hmm. you're not going to get the same answer that you can rely on that you would get from a hearing person. They may say no when really the answer is yes, because in their mind, the first thing they've heard is, are you hearing voices? Their first connection is, no, I'm not hearing anything. So it's a different set of interview questions that need to be understood. Very interesting. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this then, because I'm, I'm just kind of rambling through this as you're talking. I would assume that in the community, most Deaf people live with hearing family, so it's buffered a little bit. But what happens when they grow older? What happens when they go into nursing homes and they need that type of care? The hearing family may not be there anymore. Do we rely an awful lot on the hearing family or other friends who may know American Sign Language? It it varies. Every case is different. I will tell you this, that only a third of hearing families that have a deaf child ever learn to sign. Really? Only, yes. And that's not my opinion. That's a known statistic. And when you consider that fact, that child is isolated within their own family. Nobody really communicates with them. They don't pick up on the same social cues. They don't bond with the family the same way that the hearing children do. And it's not that big of a leap to understand why they could wind up with emotional issues and mental health issues. So two-thirds of the deaf kids grow up in homes where they do not have the ability to communicate with their own family. That is true. That's scary. It is very scary. And very sad. It is. Yes, it is. Oh, my. So then, if you you haven't really bonded with your own family as a child, you know, from infancy to... I don't know, whatever age it is, mm-hmm. you bond with your parents. So you don't have that. You grow up that way. And then as an adult, you're trying to have relationships 
but you have all these issues. So when someone comes to an organization like yours, the culture shock, if I can use the term, of actually now being able to learn a communication skill and having people who understand that skill and understand the nuances of your life must be an, an emotionally powerful event in, 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 in every sense of the word. But in a positive way. In a positive way, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. That's one of the many things that brings such joy to my life in terms of working at the National Deaf Academy is that you see these residents come in and it's the light bulb goes off and the world is brighter. And of course they have issues that they need to work through, but day by day and month by month, you see them getting better and thriving. And it's, you know, it's like witnessing a miracle. And then of course the discharge day comes and where do they go? It depends. We've had, well, just this last year, we had one resident from Alaska discharge, go back to Alaska. Everything they had thought they had put in place for him completely fell apart because there was no communication. He regressed. The state of Alaska Medicaid system came up with a very creative plan to send him back to us. And when I say creative, it's because he had aged out of their system. Hmm. But they sent him back, and he's still with us. Interesting. And I'm happy for it, happy for it, because it's 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 not the optimum plan, but it's something to probably save, can I go so far as saying save this person's life? You know, he came back to us. All the behaviors that he was demonstrating when he was back in Alaska, they're gone. He just came back to us. He's very happy. He's He has no aggressive behaviors. He's just perfectly happy. And in a large part, if I can be so simplistic, perhaps, it's because he has people to communicate with. Yes. One of the things that all of us who do mental health, we we study and we, we work hard, hopefully, to pick up the nuances of the communications that we get from our patients. We look at their eyes. We listen to the verb tense. We look at the words that they use and how they put sentences together and all that. Is American Sign Language full of those nuances like spoken languages? Are there as many, shall we say, words in American Sign Language as there are in English? I I, I would think not, but I don't know. That's why I'm asking. I don't know. Yes, it is similar, but it's a different sentence structure. For example, you and I are speaking, and it requires me 10 words for one sentence. Mm -hmm. It might be three signs in American Sign Language. Body movement and facial gestures are also a big part of American Sign Language, so it's very visual. And it's also, if I'm correct, and I'm going to show my own lack of knowledge here, the sign language is not, I guess it's almost arrogant saying this in a sense, but it's not English in a sign form, it's a separate language. And as I'm thinking about this, if someone who is Chinese or French or from wherever, it's the same language. It's not a modification of English. No, it's not. It is its own language. And it's not universal. A lot of people think sign language is sign language no matter what country you're in. That's not true. American Sign Language is exactly that, American Sign Language. So someone coming from the Orient who was deaf and learned the lang- sign language over there, they too then have a different flavor to how they sign. Yes. Fascinating. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. So where is it going? Are the agencies who help pay for mental health services, are they becoming more cooperative, more receptive to this need? Is it going backwards? Is it stagnant? Where, Where are we headed? 
here's what the problem is. Across the country, there's just not enough funding for mental health services, period, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. In many people's opinion. (laughs) Exactly. And then when it comes to access to mental health services for deaf people, there's just an ignorance. Many of our residents, by the time they come to us, they have failed many, many placements. I have a case right now that I'm involved with. This child is from Florida. She has been in, in the last mm, seven months, four therapeutic foster homes. None of, none of them have any staff that can communicate with her whatsoever. She's about to go into her fifth one, again, with no form of communication, but it's supposedly therapeutic, and it's going to be a failed placement. There's no question. And she's having behaviors right now where she's severely aggressive, but she's also a danger to herself in that she's running out into the street. She's running into people's homes that she doesn't know, trying to get into the car with people that she doesn't know. And even though I've worked hard to make sure that the local officials know Americans with Disabilities Act, they're aware that the state of Florida just entered into a settlement agreement to avoid a class action lawsuit. And the agreement, the sole purpose of it is the delivery of services to DCF consumers that are deaf. And in light of all that information, and they know it, that's what they're doing. This is a very intriguing tour of a part of the world of mental health needs that most people don't know about. I learned a lot, and I listened to you and realized how much more there is to learn. This truly is a minority within a minority, and they seem to be suffering exponentially because they just can't communicate with the world around them. The sad thing is that it doesn't take a whole lot to enhance that communication Kim House is with the National Deaf Academy in Mount Dora, Florida. Thank you very, very much for joining us and for telling us about this part of mental health services. Again, I really don't think most of us know about these details. Thank you so much. My pleasure.